Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bounties and Blasters. I'm your host, Madison. And I am your other host, Brad. And this is a Friends of the Force and Doing Talking crossover series where we're covering all things The Mandalorian on Disney+. Each week, we are hosting an in-depth discussion around the newest episode on Disney+. This week, we're talking about Chapter 3, The Sin, which was directed by Deborah Chow and written by Jon Favreau. And Deborah is actually the first woman and the first filmmaker of Asian heritage to be directing live action Star Wars. And I think it's safe to say that she killed it, Brad. What do you think? Absolutely slayed it. Give her everything under the Star Wars mantle. (laughs) (laughs) It was amazing. The fact that we know she is directing the Obi-Wan series coming to Disney Plus, like I am just so over the moon about that. And she is absolutely going to do such a spectacular job. And I actually want to bring up a a Vic Mahoney tweet who Vic Mahoney is the second unit director on the Rise of Skywalker. And she says of Deborah Chow, she absolutely slaughtered chapter three of The Mandalorian. She slapped the living shit out of this episode with effortless skill (laughs) and joy. Watching her intuition and fight sequences and sick framing throughout is too damn fun. Brava. So I just thought that was a really awesome Awesome comments from one woman director in the Star Wars universe to another, Deborah being the first to actually put out that product because obviously The Rise of Skywalker hasn't hit theaters yet. But yes, this is a huge move in progress for the Star Wars universe and and giving other types of directors from diverse backgrounds these kinds of opportunities. Yeah, I think those comments sum up the episode pretty well, I would say. I was like so excited when this episode was just probably my favorite of the show so far. I was like, I cannot wait to see what she does with the Obi-Wan series. I have like no doubts now that it's just going to be amazing. <laughs> oh, yes. And and I, I even heard too, I think uh, I know Ewan McGregor is going to be somewhat involved in the production aspects of the of the Obi-Wan series. So those two working together creatively, I, I think that show is just going to be, oh God, if this is what we're getting out of the Mandalorian with a new character, imagine what we'll get story-wise for some familiar characters. And I, I think that's kind of what excites me the most at this point with with Star Wars. I think Disney Plus is truly a, a great home for it moving forward as we go into these off years without films. It's kind of weird. Like I never thought I would be saying this. But if, like, they keep up this kind of quality with The Mandalorian and their other Disney Plus series, like, I'm going to be just as excited about the TV series as the the movies, which I I never thought I would say about Star Wars. It's crazy. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the precedent Disney Plus is trying to set. When you think of Disney, too, you always think of, like, innovation and Imagineering and all these other very creative mindsets. And I think they're just trying to set a new standard for film and television and this is definitely this is definitely a prime example of what you can do i mean baby yoda has absolutely taken the country by storm (laughs) like i I, like baby yoda could be my next president and i'd be so happy like just give him (laughs) give him everything and all in the world and the galaxy and the universe and everybody's talking about the mandalorian i went to see knives out this weekend and the guys behind me were like hey did you watch the third episode of the mandalorian yet and i was like Oh, that's awesome. They're talking about it, but stop spoiling it openly for everybody in the theater. But still, it was pretty cool to hear people like talking about it word of mouth in public. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Sweeping everywhere, you know? Yeah, I'm all for it. Baby Yoda will unify the country. You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) 
he's what we need right now. <laughs> Not <laughs> yeah. all heroes wear capes, although all <laughs> heroes have really cute pointy ears. And by all heroes, I mean simply Baby Yoda because he is the goat. I was just going to say, I don't know if this is like a hot take or a controversial opinion, but Baby Yoda is by far the cutest thing I've ever seen in Star Wars or maybe (laughs) anything for that matter. (laughs) I do not think that is a hot take. I think that's the perfect take. I think that's the only take, honestly. (laughs) I'm glad you agree. (laughs) But let's talk a little bit about Deborah Chow to open up the episode. So I had a tweet that went pretty viral I would say uh, on Friday, I just got up in the morning and I tweeted about Deborah Chow being the first woman to ever direct a live action Star Wars. And it got about 20,000 likes, which I was like, okay, that's cool, I guess, because it got added to some moments along with Alex Kane, who hosts a recap series with What the Force, and he's a writer for StarWars.com. And both him and I were getting some pretty, pretty shit comments unfortunately being in that moment and it it just truly attracted some horrible people <laughs> into my Sc- scam and villainy you could say yeah yes so i just thought it was important to you know i i keep seeing from a lot of those people saying like you know i don't care like who what gender they are it doesn't matter i just want a best person for the job or i want the best director i want to address that i guess that those kinds of comments and that kind of language to I think the important thing to recognize about Deborah Chow being the first woman to ever direct a Star Wars is because traditionally the default has always been men. And the default best person for the job, quote unquote, has always defaulted to men because women in the film industry haven't gotten those opportunities, even if they've had more experience or better ideas, that sort of thing. It's always been a default to men. And that's kind of the uphill battle women have had to face in Hollywood. So for Deborah Chow, to now have this opportunity is showing she is the best person for the job. And how many women out there in Hollywood who are directors haven't gotten these sorts of chances but could have really made an amazing Star Wars film? You got to wonder, you know, like what kind of women could have directed uh, a prequel trilogy, one of the prequel trilogy movies, you know, like what would that have looked like? But romance between Anakin and Padme directed by a woman. So we just have to, you know, that that kind of language, the best person for the job is, is to be honest, sexist language. You're you're discrediting the fact that women can can direct things and that they haven't had those opportunities because of those kind of like, you know, patriarchal standards. So this is something really amazing to celebrate and we have to acknowledge it because it's huge progress. It's something that's awesome that we can say now that women are directing in Star Wars we're having another woman direct next week and Bryce Dallas Howard for episode four. This is really awesome. This is amazing progress that we should stand behind. And I, that's all I have to say about that. You know, I just have to address that because if you're out there using that kind of language, just kind of double think what you're saying and think about the implications that sort of language does carry. Exactly. And I mean, the irony is, you know, a lot of them I saw were saying, like, we don't care about that, you know, about the label or whatever. But I'm like, if you don't care, why are you taking time out of your day to comment on a tweet that's celebrating it? Right. Like, uh, it's a bit of a paradox you have going there. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, you out there who might not care, there is a little girl out there somewhere who does care, who looks at Deborah Chow and says, wow, I didn't know women and girls could be directors. That's really cool. That's something I want to be when I grow up. That's somebody who cares. And I think that's the important thing we have to think about. You know, who is the next generation 
of quote unquote foundlings. <laughs> you know, I think back to this episode directly, they say foundlings are the future. Children in this country are the future. Children who are looking up to these role models like a Deborah Chow and like a, a Bryce Dallas Howard or like a Rick Fumiawa. And those are the kinds of important moments in, in filmmaking history that make a difference for the future generation. So those Absolutely. people care. Even if you don't care out there, there is somebody that this kind of thing could make a huge difference in their life or their career trajectory. You know, the next the next Deborah Chow, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's inspiring to me because not just um, on the directing front and the writing front, like even in the art front in the movie industry, like concept art, digital artists, all of that stuff is very male dominated. So it's very inspiring to me to see women succeeding and getting these these jobs that are usually given to men. So I'm inspired. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think that is the, the best thing to take away from this this conversation. Now, Deborah Chow did talk to Anthony Bresnikan over at, at Vanity Fair. And on being the first woman to direct Star Wars, she said, it didn't occur to me that I was the first one to leap. I want it to be about the work. I want to be a good director, not a good female director, not a good Asian director. But by the same token, obviously my career path and the representation, it is important. It is meaningful. I want to see more women directors and I want to see more directors of color. Yes, this is a great statement. She's saying, you know, she doesn't always want to look, be looked at as a good woman director, but she does acknowledge that the representation and that progress is very, very important for the industry as a whole. Absolutely. It's, it's the same reason I don't like the phrase strong female characters. You know, why can't we just say strong character? And yeah. it's the same thing here. Like, Oh, she's a good female director. No, she's just a good director. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think, too, of some of the debates I've heard of, like, you know, should we add a best woman director and separate that for the Oscars category? No, absolutely not. By doing that, you're separating the two and saying that the women can't compete with men for that coveted Oscar win, you know? So to, I think to get away from that language eventually is going to be a good thing. And hopefully we get more women directors in those seats. So, you know, and hopefully we reach that point. And I'm, it's kind of a bittersweet thing like that. It's taking this long, long in Star Wars to get to this point. But I'm glad we're finally here. Yeah, so. me too. Another thing that she did mention was she said she woke up to many, many texts and emails about her episode. And she was like, how does everybody watch us so early in the morning? Deborah, we are up. <laughs> we are up in the wee hours of the dawn and we are watching this. I woke up at 6.30 a.m. and watched this before work and I didn't want to go to work afterwards. It was so exhilarating. Yeah, <laughs> like never underestimate, it. never underestimate the Star Wars fans. <laughs> She's learning our ways slowly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sure she's going to feel that way, too. When Obi-Wan launches, we're going to be like up all night waiting for those episodes to drop. This has become like a new thing for me now. Like on Fridays, I always look forward to waking up in the morning and watching The Mandalorian. Like it's a new routine and I just love it. It's so much fun. Yep. Oh, it's, it's a nice little Friday morning tradition. And this week with Thanksgiving, you know, our stomachs are going to be full of turkey and all that kind of stuff. And then we get, get to have leftovers and watch episode four right in the morning. So that's going to be yes. exciting stuff. Now, as we get more into the episode, um, Deborah did mention that she was very inspired by the 1961 movie Yojimbo which is actually a Kurosawa movie about a nameless ronin in a town full of crime lords. And again, this comes from that Vanity Fair article. So I just think that's cool to see Kurosawa continuing to have an influence in the Star Wars universe as obviously George Lucas was very inspired by many of Kurosawa's films like Hidden Fortress and creating the original trilogy. 
And she also mentions that her dad was a big movie fan and they would watch Hong Kong action films together, such as Hard Boiled, which came out in 1992. And she said she tried to bring out a little Hard Boiled with the baby. It was kind of an amazing thing because it was like coming back to classic cinema and filmmaking. So there's definitely a lot of my dad in that episode. Sadly, he didn't get to see this, but he would be very proud. He would probably also be in shock. And I just, that got me emotional thinking about because, you know, we've heard Dave Filoni also mention that he wishes his dad was here to see what he's doing and that he knows he would be very proud. So it just goes to show like how much this work means to these directors. And that just is a really great feeling to, to know that they're doing it more, they're doing it for more of a larger purpose of, you know, this is what I've always, my life has always been leading up to, you know, watching those movies with her dad has obviously played a huge influence on her career choice. So to, to have that kind of emotional moment for her to be like, you know, this is, this is something he'd be proud of. That's just a really good thing to realize, you know, this means more than just star Wars to her. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that bit from the Q and a too, with Dave Filoni just like really got me emotional when he was talking about that. And then how like Bryce Dallas Howard said, George Lucas considers you like a uh, son. Oh my gosh. Oh, uh, <laughs> rip my emotions. I was like, I'm just going to go uh, cry now. Please excuse me. <laughs> grab my pillow in the fetal position and just start rocking back and forth slowly. I'm like, oh. yes. <laughs> uh, it's so emotional though. And let's talk about this episode. She slayed it. Madison, what are your overall thoughts on on chapter three, The Sin? Wow. Um, it was a ride. Like, I was at peak stress the entire time, my first viewing. Like, um, it actually turned out that my kind of prediction going into that episode turned out to be pretty accurate because I was thinking to myself, you know, I think he's going to turn Baby Yoda in, but it's going to be like a plan where, like, he gets the best guard, gets the armor, and then he goes back for Baby Yoda, but, like... I thought he was going to have planned it from the beginning. And then when I realized he didn't, I was just like, oh, my gosh, I was stressing so much the entire time. Baby Yoda wasn't on screen. (laughs) I was like, what's happening to him? Is he okay? Like, has he been fed? Is he sleeping? Like, uh." (laughs) and it was just amazing. Like, it was just a perfect balance of like great action sequences and these really like heart-wrenching emotional moments between Mando and Baby Yoda. It was just a fantastic episode. Probably my favorite so far. Right. I also thought he might have it planned from the beginning. So I was kind of confused. Like, he was just about to leave and that was it, you know? It, it just kind of felt, like, out of place for his character throughout what we had learned about him the first two episodes. I'm glad, I'll, actually, you know, he eventually made the, the choice to go back and save Baby Yoda, but I also thought he was going to have that planned from the beginning. As, as sort of like, you know, I'm going to get the armor, going to go and, and do this all afterwards. But uh, no, I did love this episode, though. It was everything I needed besides that. You know, the stakes were high. The payoff was satisfying. I think it, it definitely pushed the boundaries of Star Wars storytelling. And, you know, having so much nonverbal acting and nonverbal story being told, I think, has been the strength of the show. Just based on the music and Baby Yoda cooing and the Mandalorian's head movements, subtle head movements, and just how the camera work is. It's just all creating this amazing product that I didn't think we were going to be getting through the show. I think that um, actually like the way the story unfolded, I actually ended up enjoying so much better than what I was predicting. Star Wars often does that to me. It's like, you think you want this, but you actually want this. And there was just something so like 
raw and genuine about the Mandalorian. Like one of my favorite scenes in the entire episode was when he goes to his ship and he's sitting there and he sees like that little knob is missing that yeah. Baby Yoda was playing with and he like makes the decision to go back. Um, that just really got to me. And it was so like powerful too because you understand why he would like want to like why he would decide to leave Baby Yoda there because he understands the stakes. Like if you go back for that kid, everyone is going to hunt you. Everybody's going to be trying to kill you to get to that kid again. So he's risking his life to do this. And it was just so good. So good. Yeah, no, that that makes total sense. I thought maybe he was a little more developed in that sense throughout the first two episodes. But I think this was finally mm-hmm. the episode where he he made that decision to go full in on baby Yoda and this is like his job now you know it didn't matter the bounties don't matter anymore the money doesn't matter anymore he's kind of making that Han Solo uh, face turn and now he's going to be the good guy from here on out which I I love yeah I think it's hard always hard to like break a pattern like a a habit of life and we don't know how long he's been bounty hunting but it's totally kind of disrupting the the routine and the pattern of his life and everything's going to be different from here on out. So that was just like the really pivotal decision for him to make. Mm-hmm. And I thought the the title of the episode was interesting, The Sin. I kind of thought, you know, The Sin is handing over Baby Yoda, but I think a lot of people have different interpretations about what The Sin means. What do you think The Sin was in the episode? I think the sin meant him going against the guild rules. Mm-hmm. I think what we're meant to think in the beginning is, yes, it is him giving over Baby Yoda because we get the title screen right after he does that. So we're like, oh, OK, like that's that's the sin. But as the episode evolves, I think we're meant to interpret it as he goes against the guild rules. He knows the stakes. He knows what could happen. He doesn't care. This baby means more to him than anything else. So he will go out of his way and literally be hunted if it means saving this child. And when he thought he was going to be dying, it only mattered in that moment that he, him and the baby were, were together. And that's why that, that for me, the moment that broke me was when he was looking at the baby in the truck and he's like stroking his head subtly. And I was like, Oh my God, baby Yoda's looking up into his eyes and the baby Yoda doesn't know what's happening, but the Mando's like, this is it. You know, if, if, if I look, if I look at this child and that's my last memory in my life, like, I'm I'm happy, and that seeing destroyed me. Yeah, and then seeing that <laughs> missile come from behind him again, another instance of Deborah Chow's directing in this episode, where it's just such a amazing shot. I get chills when it happens. So good. Yeah, that that moment that you were just talking about is probably the highlight of the show for me. It was just such an incredible moment, and I think that going back to the sin thing by the by the end of the episode, I think my final conclusion about what that could mean is the sin is handing over baby Yoda in the first place because all of that like turning him over in the first place and then deciding to go back and save him resulted in the death of like everyone in that town (laughs) (laughs) like just about every bounty hunter there just got like murdered because of his indecision that indecisiveness and so i i don't know that i think that's like my final kind of interpretation of it but it's definitely open to that interpretation Mm -hmm. for sure in terms of the overall episode's message i go back to the armor sequence which we got a lot of mandalorian exploration in this episode and i really really enjoyed those aspects and just seeing them all come out at the end was just such an awesome and satisfying moment I was like cheering. <laughs> yes. 
The armorer says, when one chooses to walk the way of the Mandalore, you are both hunter and prey. So from a storytelling perspective, we begin this episode with the Mandalorian being the hunter. You know, he brings in Baby Yoda to Werner Herzog's character, which do we know the name of him yet? No, I don't think they've said his name yet. Okay, I'm just going to call him Mr. Herzog from here on out. So (laughs) he brings Baby Yoda into Mr. Herzog, and he is the hunter. He's brought in this bounty, give me my reward, I want my next job, etc. And he eventually becomes the prey. So he's walking, he's truly walking the way of the Mandalore by embracing both those aspects of his, of his heritage and his ancestry by being now prey. The, you know, the tracking devices are literally going off in the town and people are hunting him at the end of the episode. And he is the most wanted man at that moment. Whereas in the flip side of things, the Mandalorians, you know, they talk about they can't come out all at once above the ground. Only one of them can be out at a time. Their strength used to be in their numbers. So now they're obviously the prey. You know, the it's much harder to find a Mandalorian nowadays than steel, as, as Mr. Herzog says. And at the end of the episode, they become the hunters. So we get, again, that flip from both sides. We get the flip of the Mandalorian from hunter to prey and the Mandalorians from prey to hunter. And I think Absolutely. that's kind of the the powerful storytelling of this episode is to to show that, you know, this is the way I think is... Uh, a line that's going to be as infamous as Luke, I'm your father, <laughs> you know, for the Mandalorian. This is the way. And yeah, that was the, the key takeaway for me on this. I mean, we are three episodes in and we already have I have spoken and this is the way. <laughs> How quotable. I mean, <laughs> I know the Mandalorian is just really delivering the quotable lines. Um, yeah, the going from hunter to prey. And I think at the end of the episode, it's really just showing the 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 strength in numbers and in family because even if they're not blood related they are this family unit and it's just really cool to see Mando kind of adopting Baby Yoda and that <laughs> kind of like and seeing the rest of his Mandalorian family like backing him up so that he can save this child that was really powerful yeah is man is uh, Baby Yoda gonna get his own Mandalorian armor. I don't know. Could the ears fit? Like, they need to make (laughs) holes in the helmet. (laughs) Oh, my God. He's so cute. I know. Yeah, I know. And I think Mando needs to, like, have one of those things on his chest so he can, like, carry Baby Yoda there. (laughs) Or, like, maybe a backpack. Maybe that would be safer. And then he needs his own armor so that he can be safe if he gets carried into combat. (laughs) Well, I think this is a good segue to to talk and open the show with talking about Mandalorian culture and the idea of this is the way. So uh, I think we should start with signets and and the Beskar armor. I'm having an idea now, Madison. What if, you know, the Mandalorian hasn't unveiled his signet yet? We don't know what it's going to be. And I wonder if we'll get that by the end of the first season. But do you think his signet could be the Yoda species? Maybe that's how we find out the name of the species. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Although I get it the impression seems... that a signet is something you've killed. Exactly. <laughs> Although maybe they change that and then maybe the signet can be something you've saved. And that's oh my kind gosh. of the flip of the Mandalorian culture. Maybe they realize there's a lot more in saving things than just destroying them or hunting them. Don't mind me. I'll just be wiping away my tears. <laughs> <laughs> like how powerful would that be? Ugh. 
Yeah, I was really wondering, you know, after I think it was chapter one where they talked about it the first time when she was like, has your signet revealed itself soon? Um, it's it's interesting to find out that it comes from a beast that they slay because I was wondering, does it have something to do with like the clan they belong to? I wasn't quite sure what was going on there, but I think it's really interesting. And again, we see like Mando's honesty there that like it wasn't a noble kill, so I can't accept this. And he even says too, you know, why wasn't a noble kill? My enemy helped me. <laughs> he, but he didn't know he was my yeah. enemy. I was like, Mando, what are you talking about? Baby Yoda is not your enemy. You know you are the softest for that little green thing. Come on. Yeah. Man. I was going, Psh, like, what are you talking about? Like, this, this is a joke. You're speaking crazy <laughs> right now, dude. You got to get your shit together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We really get painted a picture of the desperation of the Mandalorians in this episode. Because from what we know, at least on Rebels, from Rebels is... I guess Sabine's mom was kind of working with the Empire. That's the impression we got, which made me, which which made it interesting that the the big dude with the the heavy Gatling gun, whose uh, name is Paz Vizla, which we'll get to in a little bit on on more of those Easter eggs there. But Paz says, you know, now he sits at the table with the Empire and takes their their spoils, which I'm like, do they know about? the Ren clan, like what's going on with them and how they were also taking the spoils with the empire, which makes me think yeah. like maybe that's how isolated this little faction of the Mandalorians are because they seem to think that there's not Mandalorians out there, even though we thought Bo-Katan united the Mandalorians. This, this was something you were trying to figure out and you had brought up to me before we started recording. What are your thoughts on where the Mandalorians are in this timeline and why they're hiding and why they don't think their strength is in their numbers anymore? That's one of my biggest questions, because when I was kind of like looking at the timeline and putting that together earlier today, I was like, so it's been almost like 10 years since kind of Bo-Katan took the Darksaber and supposedly unified Mandalore and these clans. So you would think that it would kind of be like a beacon, like everyone starts hearing word and the Mandalorians who have gone elsewhere start returning home and kind of building their civilization again. But these Mandalorians haven't mentioned that at all. Are they aware of it? Um, I'm not sure, like, what's going on here, because they they are living differently, too, than any Mandalorians we've seen, like, in the Clone Wars or in Rebels. They're, they're going, I don't know how else to say it, they're going very, like, hardcore Mandalorian. It seems to me that they're living by the most ancient Mandalorian traditions. Like we do not take our masks off when in other canon material, the Mandalorians have never had a problem with taking off their masks. So there's just a lot of interesting, like new concepts being introduced in this series. They mentioned that their world was shattered by the empire. Although again, we don't really get that impression in Rebels. They seem still very united by the end. So unless that world got shattered again post Rebels, which I don't think is the case, so this does seem to be a very separate faction. My my prediction is that we're gonna link up with some other Mandalorian factions by the end of maybe this season or this series. I I still think Katie Sackoff is involved in the show and is going to show up as a live action Bo Katan, and that would have Dave Filoni written all over it. And I think he wants to do that. I think those are his characters that he wants to bring to live action. And what better chance to do that than the series? But yes, it is, it is very is very interesting, like why this particular faction of Mandalorians are so desperate 
and so secretive and that why they think secrecy is their survival. You know, I, I kind of feel bad for them. Yeah. At first I was wondering, like you said, were, were they kind of, were they still on Mandalore and then they didn't like how the Wrens and the Saxons were kind of just bowing to the empire and they left. But then I was thinking about the flashback that we finally got to see more of in this episode, which is obviously during the Clone Wars. Um, and we see like the super battle droids killing his his family, the the villagers that the village that he belonged to, and um, I'm wondering who saved him. Like that's a big question because it cuts off right before someone obviously saves him because there's no one else there too. He's there alone. He's a kid. He's helpless, and you see the super battle droid looming over him. So the big question is who saved him, and I would think that it would be a Mandalorian because he's a foundling. He's obviously this orphan of war that was found and saved. And um, if he was saved by this particular tribe, then like, were they already a separated faction from Mandalore at that time? Mm -hmm. There's just so many big questions. Yeah. I feel like it's got to be explored more. And I think we'll get more answers. Hopefully as the, the season progresses, I was telling you episode five is written and directed by Dave Filoni which makes me think mm-hmm. that episode will dive very hard into Mandalorian culture. So that, yeah. that's that's my thought process there. And I think that'll be a really, really informative episode. So far, it really feels like Mando's, like his background, his history is very much a, a mystery that they're slowly introducing us to bits and pieces of it as we go. And that's one of the main um, it's kind of a big like hook of the show. Who is this guy? Like, where did he come from? Where's he going? And they're slowly revealing to us over time more of who he is. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this before we started recording, but we're, we're both starting to question, is he even a Mandalorian by blood or was he just living in a different society and was saved by the Mandalorians and adopted to become a Mandalorian? Mm-hmm. Which would speak to how the cultures change. You know, they can't rely on blood lineage anymore, kind of like how we've seen in Rebels and with that, you know, House Vizsla and House Ren. It's very much about family, like by blood. But now it seems yeah. we were saying the definition of foundling may very well be just orphan children that they find. And when you think even about the Jedi, younglings are Jedi that they literally go and find. And bring back to the Jedi Temple. So it seems that the Mandalorian culture, at least this faction, is very rooted in the ways of the Jedi, whether intentional or not. You know, they are finding orphan children and bringing them in. And the foundlings are the future. And you got to wonder, too, you know, if they're not breeding with each other, that that makes sense, too. They're finding other kids to bring them in. That's how they're continuing to survive and continuing to have their legacy live on. Which would mm-hmm. make sense why this this world, you know, if it's getting attacked by battle droids back then, where are the Mandalorians defending them? You know, when if this was a Mandalorian planet, wouldn't they be there shooting at these battle droids and helping in the fight? But it seems like, you know, yeah. that whole planet's getting completely ravished by the Separatist army. Yeah, exactly. I actually had an interesting thought, too, with that Mando flashback. And I was telling you about the, the just the imagery and the editing of this scene in particular, but... The door that they open up, his parents open up to put him inside. I thought it looked like the chest plate of a Mandalorian armor in some ways. I don't know if, if the choice of, of that was was intentional or not. 
But I thought it was interesting when the doors get opened and we see the battle droid, the next shot in transition is a hammer coming down and smashing that frame and then transitioning to the new Mandalorian Curious that they developed for the Mandalorian. So it just yeah. kind of seems symbolic, like the doors represented the chest plate and inside was a lonely, vulnerable Mandalorian boy. And it seems to be like maybe underneath the armor, underneath that chest plate, literally, is his soft and vulnerable heart that his whole life he's been trying so hard to mask, literally, and not have be exposed. And then Baby Yoda is making him feel that exposure that he's always his whole life been working towards suppressing, which I think is why his first instinct is to go to grief cargo and be like, what's my next job? I need to get my mind off of baby Yoda. You know, I can't think about him anymore. Just like, give me the next thing. I need to get out of here as far away from here as, as I can. He even says that like, you know, grief cargo says it's, it's far. And he's like, far is good. And I think it's like, he wants to get away from that vulnerability. And it's when he goes back to that shuttle that he realizes, Oh my God, like, Baby Yoda probably feels that same way I felt, you know, beneath those doors when that droid opened up. And he probably feels like Dr. Pershing is that battle droid I looked into the eyes of before someone saved me. And now I have to go save Baby Yoda that same way. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's there's kind of a few directions that he can go moving forward. I keep trying to think, like, what's what's Mando's journey going to be? Because... It can it can kind of go one of two ways. Like, is he going to more go away from the the Mandalorian traditions that he's been raised under, or is he going to kind of transform them from within? Like, is he going to transform and improve his community, or is he going to abandon it and kind of go his own separate way? And that's what I've been wondering a lot about because I mean they're so extreme that they're like you cannot even take off your mask i'm sure it just means in public because like dudes gotta eat and brush his teeth right right <laughs> but it's just so extreme that it's like how can you like you need to connect with your fellow human beings right you don't need to have a mask between you and everyone else at all times like if you're looking at a character like Kylo Ren, we're shown that he needs to remove that mask. He needs to connect with people because as long as you keep that mask on, you're going to be isolated. You're kind of refusing to make yourself vulnerable with anybody else. And to me, it feels like they have been emphasizing so much in every episode so far. Like Mando does not take off his helmet. He refuses. I, I think that it has to be part of his journey at some point whether it's the end of this season or next season or whatever he has to take that mask off and I think that's going to be like one of the most significant moments if not the most significant in the show mm -hmm. and specifically like who is he willing to remove it for as well uh Bo-Katan <clears throat> um so <laughs> hey no but seriously <laughs> if Cara Dune <laughs> I, I would love to see him take the mask off I want to see Pedro Pascal under there and I want to see you know maybe he's got some makeup maybe he's scarred maybe that's another reason he doesn't take the mask off we, we don't know Ooh. uh that could be an interesting little twist a little subtle detail there as well but that would be interesting yeah I've been seeing so many funny tweets though about like how do Mandalorians eat if they've never taken off their mask <laughs> I'm like guys he, he's so hungry it's why you know he's got to eat he some, like at some point he like showers with the mask on <laughs> 
god, has he ever washed the mask? That thing's got to stink, honestly. Ew. I don't know. His maybe. hair, though, like, gross. Yeah. yeah, right. He's got some serious helmet hair. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the this is the way quote. And I want to kind of get your interpretation. We, we've kind of hinted at it already, but my my interpretation of this is, you know, this is the way of life. You know, it means no matter the odds or what could happen, there is some larger purpose that we're trying to serve. So, you know, hiding in the shadows is the way because the foundlings are the future and we have to protect them and we have to make sure that we're not risking our entire faction because we're the last of us. And at the end of the episode, you know, Mandalorian mentions you're going to have to relocate the whole covert and, and Paz says, this is the way. And he's like, this is the way. The way is to no longer be the prey, but the hunter and, you know, show we still do have strength and numbers. And I love the salutes at the end of the episode to say, we're with you. And I think, you know, you talked about, are we going to see him go away from the Mandalorian ways or stick with it? I think this episode definitely tells us they're more united now than ever before because of the risk he was willing to take. He brought them out of the shadows to protect the Mandalorian and show he they're all still united and I love his little comments of, uh, dang, I need to get me one of those. I think we're going to get a jetpack eventually. I would love that so much. I was trying to remember if we had seen a jetpack in the trailers. Um, do you remember seeing one? I do not. Like, I remember, I remember there was a it. shot of him, like, grappling, like, using his grappling hook to, like, get on a ship that's flying. And so I, I don't remember if he had a jetpack or not in that shot. Yeah, I don't think he did. But I think it would, uh, like, it's. Probably foreshadowing of something to come, him saying yes. that. Yeah. So what is your interpretation of, of this as the way? Like, what does it mean to you and from this episode? Hmm. It just, it's part of their religion. They are clearly under this very, um, probably ancient and very strict Mandalorian religion, whatever their original kind of beliefs were, it feels like they've gone back to that. And that's just kind of their way of acknowledging it. And I keep thinking back to in chapter two, when he said weapons are a part of my religion, he actually calls it a religion. So it's not just like a code even, or like guidelines or whatever. This is literally their religion and they are very um committed to it and so I, it was really cool to like see kind of their unity in this episode that we we haven't seen yet in the show i do love how it does like you said feel like a religion because even him walking in to get an armor upgrade and i had to laugh when you mentioned on our last episode how it's going to be like a video game where every time yeah. he goes back <laughs> it was literally shot for shot where they start with the the logo of the Mandalorians and then they go down and it's like the same exact shot. It's like when you enter a cutscene for the video game, when you go to the, exactly. the shop, you know, or the blacksmith. So I, I, I laughed at that and I, I appreciated your comment last week, but it does feel very religious and because he goes in there and sh they take everything very slowly, you know, it's not just like, okay, I'm going to make the armor real quick. And it's not like, you know, a really playful or witful banter. It's very like, formal you know like this is going to be your signet yada 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 and this is how we're going to make the armor and he sits there kind of pretzel style waiting for the armor to be created and he doesn't really move it's like 
you don't move until this armor is created. Like you're going to wait. I don't know. Just the whole ceremony. It feels like a ceremony almost is what I'm kind of getting at. Yeah. And I definitely. do like that aspect of the, the Mandalorians, how it draws a crowd even, and they're all there to watch it happen. Like it's some huge deal that there's this much best car that they finally uncovered and yeah. what it's going to mean for their foundlings, especially. Yeah, the Beskar really feels like and is almost treated like a relic by them at this point. It's not just this common resource that they have a lot of anymore. And particularly in this episode, I was really starting to get the vibe of like, it feels very Templar-esque. Like you start with their helmets, their helmets are kind of knightly in design and in this episode mando finally gets like the full suit and he's fully like a knight in shining armor now he's got the cape and everything like it and the armor is their spiritual leader like they're just very they're giving me very knightly templar vibes so far and i want to mention too like in the old eu the original mandalorians were called crusaders and they went on these great crusades that kind of their purpose in life was to gain honor and glory and battle. And I'm wondering if these new Mandalorians, if his tribe has that as part of their goal or what their goal for the future is. We know that they're very invested in the future generation. The foundlings are the future. But are they are they planning any kind of wars or crusades it doesn't feel that way to me even though they've kind of returned to their ancient traditions they seem to just really be focusing on rebuilding right now and i would love to see this show truly give us the the story of rebuilding the mandalorians you know i think that would be a much larger story beyond just the mandalorian himself to tell i think that'd be pretty powerful to Mm -hmm. see the civilization that's been so ravished by the events of the great purge to get reborn and it also, too, explains why they were absent from the original trilogy. So to see them maybe get back to those old days of crusading together and being like very strong as one unit, I th- that would be very fascinating, which I think that's why they have to meet up at some point with a stronger Mar- Mandalorian tribe to show them that there is a different way than they might be thinking of. Yeah, and I can't help but think forward to the future like are they going to just sit by and watch the resistance try to take on the first order alone i don't think they would i think they have to wade into the conflict at some point oh my god if we get some mandalorian ships in the rise of skywalker in that space battle (laughs) i would lose my mind (laughs) (laughs) oh my god like i think of those ships from uh the clone wars like from death watch yeah those ships like oh those things were beautiful like some people think they've seen the Razor Crest in that uh, Rise of Skywalker shot with all the ships. Yeah, um, it's like really small down there, and you can't quite tell, but it's definitely a similar ship. Yeah, it the engines seem kind of small, but the design yeah. is very very similar. Mm-hmm. So I would love that. That'd be that'd be fun. Maybe get Baby Yoda. He's the key to all this. He's gonna defeat Palpatine with with Ray and and Kylo. And oh my gosh, he is. <laughs> Ray, <laughs> Baby Yoda walks into the fight and. <laughs> Ray goes, oh, look, another baby. And Kylo's like, what? And she's like, another baby. He's like, who's the first? And she just looks at him and he's like, oh. (laughs) He's like, it's me, isn't it? Palpatine's going to be like, are you kidding me? I get rid of the old guy and now there's a baby one. (laughs) Master Yoda, you survived. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh, we just spoiled Trough. Yeah, that's actually a leak. I'm sorry, guys. That's leaked. I think I see the helicopters flying over my house now. Oh no. Oh, the FBI just messaged me. They said we're watching you. <laughs> <laughs> JJ's crying. <laughs> JJ's actually rewriting the whole thing. The reshoots are starting. <laughs> Getting more on the Mandalorians, I, I hope we do do see more of their their culture throughout the show, and I think we will. I mean, with Dave Filoni involved and John Favreau, the voice of Pre Vizsla in the Clone Wars, I don't think you can't get more of of the Mandalorians. I think that is the story they're ultimately trying to tell. But the Mandalorian himself is just a smaller portion of that, and fitting into the the entire piece. You know, when you think of like how can the series eventually leave off on a satisfying conclusion, I think you have to have very large implications. And what better, larger implication than to say the Mandalorians are finally reborn and stronger than ever. And I think that would be like a really great overall theme to to leave off the series with. That's a very long-term idea, but I think we'll get more of that as, as we go on. But let's talk a little bit about the adventures of Mando and Baby. Yes, let's. Did your heart break right in the beginning of the episode when we got that, got that moment where Baby's playing with the toy and he's like that's not a toy and he puts him back in the crib and he looks back a little bit and baby yoda smiles and mando just completely ignores him and then baby yoda's face got so sad he looked so so upset and he was like why is my master not paying attention to me and then he kind of cowers away to the shadow and just like hides himself and i'm like you gotta be kidding me (laughs) oh my god this is breaking my heart it's too early for this he was like, please just look at me. And I was like dying inside. <laughs> what did you think overall about this like opening sequence when he brought the baby to Warner Herzog and, you know, he, he the little baby's going away and Warner says, you know, such a large bounty for such a small package. And then we just see the baby Yoda uh, coo and cry as he gets taken away into the other room and he looks at the Mandalorian there's kind of like a slow-mo shot almost of the Mandalorian watching and juxtaposed with this giant new Beskar that he can have now you know like was the spoils really worth giving away this living creature and I think of when Ray in The Force Awakens was like you know BB-8's not for sale even though mm-hmm. Ankar plots like look at all these portions I could give you you know and Ray ultimately chooses the route of keeping BB-8 saved you know but the Mandalorian gets there it just takes a little bit yeah I mean it's really a, tes- a testament to Ray because the the portions were much more valuable to her even than the Beskar is to the Mandalorian because like the Mandalorian's not starving he's pretty well right. off and Ray's pretty much starving she has to work ridiculously hard to just live to each next day so yeah that's just really a testament to how great she is but yeah mando did get there just took him a little bit longer (laughs) (laughs) yeah there are some great baby moments in this though i mean him just being in that little blanket when he was going through the rescue i thought was just incredible and going back to what deborah chow was inspired by the movie hard-boiled there's actually a scene towards the end of that movie uh where the one of the main characters he picks up a baby and he's running through the hallways of this hospital carrying the baby in his arms shooting a bunch of enemies so you could you can definitely see the inspiration when you watch that scene compared to what we get in the mandalorian even with the music so i'm sure she worked with ludwig to get the effect that she wanted in terms of this almost like very secretive mission of him trying to hide because he has such a valuable package that he can't risk being shot. And we almost get that one shot where the stormtrooper shoots and it barely 
barely almost hits the little oh. baby my mom when we watched it she like gasped she's like oh my god <laughs> so many heart attacks in this episode that sequence of him leaving well going in and leaving with baby yoda was just incredible the the combat sequences in this show so far have been incredible in my opinion i'm not sure who's who the stunt coordinator is i need to look at that but they've done a fantastic job so far um like I love seeing Mando using all of his different gadgets. It's so fun. Like he's got the flamethrower and he's got the grappling hook and he really uses all of his different tools to take down the stormtroopers. It was just yeah. so fun to see. A little bit of show and tell for the audience. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. And the, the whistling birds, we've got to mention oh, those. <laughs> yes. Those are so cool. He only shot off like three of them though. So I think he has a couple left. Yeah. Those were amazing. Uh, so cool so cool he's like careful wait a minute let me just sit down baby yoda so i can like kill all you guys (laughs) (laughs) baby yoda's like can i take a nap real quick he's like sure (laughs) just close your eyes little baby yeah don't look i thought that one shot was pretty powerful where he's flamethrowering the one stormtrooper and then it cuts to baby yoda whose face is lit up by the flames the orange Mm -hmm. light and all he's doing is looking up at the mandalorian I just thought that was there was something moving about that in some way. I can't really explain why I felt that way, but it was just I think he was realizing like this guy is doing something for me. I don't really understand it. Well, yeah. And two, like since chapter two as well, we're like seeing the fact that even though man is trying to protect the, the baby throughout all this the baby is still seeing all of this violence and Mando clearly doesn't want baby Yoda to have that same like upbringing and having to see all that violence that he did, but yet it's happening anyway. And bringing this all back to, to the hero's journey. Now I was kind of trying to figure out how we talked about in the first episode, you know, the belly of the whale, the crossing of the threshold, all those concepts from, from Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey. But I think that in this episode, the best thing I could compare it to is the road of trials so Campbell talks about, you know, once having traversed the threshold, the hero moves in a dream landscape of curiously fluid, ambiguous forms where he must survive a succession of trials. So this episode definitely felt like a succession of trials because he completes the bounty, he gets the best car, he gets new armor, and then he you know, kills a bunch of stormtroopers, gets the baby back, and then eventually survives that whole fiasco towards the end with the bounty hunters and the guild going after him. So it is, it is a trial that he has to pass. And it says here, the hero is covertly aided by the advice, amulets, and secret agents of the supernatural helper whom he met before his entrance into this region. This region being the place where these trials are taking place or the special world of the hero's journey. And I think that his supernatural helper is the armorer who literally gives him those amulets and gives him the advice and the secret agents that will help him through his trials like the Whispering Birds and the new armor that he needed in order to carry out this rescue mission. And it says, it may be that here he discovers for the first time that there is a benign power everywhere supporting him in his superhuman passage. And I think that benign power is the Mandalorians. He realizes that they will come out, you know, he discovers this for the first time that, you know, they're not going to continue to hide anymore. This is, I think, truly very unexpected of them. And I, I don't think he was expecting them to help him. So it just goes yeah, to show was, that, that now they're there for him. He was definitely shocked when he looked up and saw them. Right. Because if he knew that was his backup plan, you, we wouldn't have gotten that small sentimental moment where he is about to give up his life for the baby and is looking the baby in the eyes. At that point, it's the only thing that matters to him. Exactly. And it says the original departure into the land of trials represented only the beginning of the long and really perilous path 
of initiatory conquest and moments of illumination. So, you know, that whole mudhorn thing and getting the baby in the first place, that was only the beginning. Like, this is not going to be an easy path for him to follow. And there's going to be even more uh, perilous journeys and perilous tasks that he's going to have to undergo. And I think of that behind the scenes photo with all those stormtroopers, him and Kara Dune, they're going to have to face a lot more Imperials throughout this journey in the first season. We're going to get a lot of action sequences, I think. We haven't even Definitely. seen the beginning of, of, of what's to come. And, and last here, it says, you know, meanwhile, there will be a multitude of preliminary victories, unsustainable ecstasies, and momentary glimpses of the wonderful land. So I thought of, you know, unsustainable ecstasies. I think of an unsustainable ecstasy of him being an unbeatable gunslinger. He thought he could just completely get out of the situation at the end of the episode that like he could just shoot all these guys and get out of it unscathed. Yeah. And he quickly realizes, you know, he only has so much of a flamethrower. He only has so much ammo. He's kind of in a corner. He's back to the wall. He's not going to survive this alone. So this is an unsustainable ecstasy. He can't he can't do this alone, you know. And I think of the momentary glimpses of the, the wonderful land, the wonderful land being the sort of ideal world where he survives, the baby survives, and the Mandalorians can be free once again. So he gets glimpses of all that sort of stuff throughout this action sequence towards the end. And I think that's his hero's journey here. He learns a lot along this this trial. And luckily, he gets past it. You know, he gets past these, these obstacles. Yeah, definitely a very clear reminder that, like, this hero and no hero can go through their journey alone. They have to have help. And he's backed up by his Mandalorian family. So that was just really great. So what did you think in, in just in terms of of this whole episode and kind of where this leaves the Mandalorian, like, you know, where we, where we see him now, where we might see him in future episodes, like what's going to be his next sense of progression throughout his hero's journey. Well, I was thinking about how symbolically he's only been on dead planets so far. We've seen him on like ice planets. And I think the one he was on in this chapter, it looks like a a lava planet from space almost. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's been on the desert planet and, Next episode, we're going to be seeing him on a living planet for the first time because I are those images from Entertainment Weekly, I think, where we've seen him like with Cara Dune and um, I can't remember the other actress's name when they go to this village. And can we talk about the synopsis that's been released for next uh, episode? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I haven't even seen it. He's teaming up with an ex-rebel soldier who's obviously Cara Dune to protect a village. Um, and we're going to be seeing him on a living planet for the first time in the series. And I think it's important that Cara Dune's going to be coming in in this episode as well. The The feminine presence is going to be so much larger next episode than it has been thus far in the show. And I think that's really important. And it almost feels like, okay, Mando's past like level one, basically, because he's in this dead world, basically, of just bounty hunting. Um, going from one job to the next. And he finally has changed his ways enough to where he has saved a life instead of just delivering a bounty to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, he saved Baby Yoda. And honestly, I think the coloring even of Baby Yoda is important. He's green. He just really stood <laughs> out in this episode against this like cold, dead environment. He's yeah. this green living thing. And it's like... I know. <laughs> and now it's like, okay, you've passed level one, Mando. Now you have to go on to your next challenge. And I don't know exactly what that's going to be. 
but it looks like, you know, he's going to be defending this village and protecting life again. These raiders are going to be coming in trying to kill and destroy and plunder, and he's going to be defending life on an even larger scale than he has already. So I love it. (laughs) And the fact that we might get him like teaching this village how to fight, because we've seen some of those stills where the people are like holding the sticks and they're and they're swinging them outwards. And I think Jonah Marie was the first one to point it out from the Geeky Bubble podcast. She pointed out in the Clone Wars, there was that scene with Obi-Wan training a village. Yes. And it looked almost exactly similar. So I was like, okay, this also has some like Dave Filoni-esque moments in it, clearly. So It's very Magnificent Seven, for sure. Yeah. And Magnificent Seven was inspired by, again, Kurosawa film. I think it was called The Seven Samurai. So if we get, you know, Cara Dune kind of teaching the hand-to-hand combat along with the Mandalorian and... Again, the Mandalorian is going to be finally fully embracing the feminine more than ever before. I think it's significant that it's on like a living planet rather than a dead planet where there has been a lack of of that feminine presence. So it kind of all fits together. And I'm, I'm really excited for her to be introduced and see what role she plays. And I hope it's a very important role. I hope it's not just, you know, a side character like, you know, how we got with IG-11. I don't know if he's coming back or not, but I hope it's nothing like that where it's like, you know, an episode and a half of her presence throughout the season. I hope we get a lot of her. I would be so disappointed. (laughs) Yeah, I think she's going to be a pretty major character. I don't know if she'll be in like every episode, but I definitely think she's going to be very important, obviously, to be carrying over to season two. And I'm very interested to see like what what their relationship's going to be like. Like, will it start off kind of contentious or will they get along right off the bat? I'm really curious to see all that stuff. The possibilities are so good for this relationship. Oh, God. I'm a fan of angst, so I hope we get a little bit of that. <laughs> I mean, and his his relationship with the feminine has been very contentious so far. Right. Punching the blurg in the eye, fighting with the <laughs> mud horn. Like, it hasn't gone well so far, so I'm wondering how this is going to go. <laughs> well, I think we saw in some footage, too, they were fighting. It might have been the, the, the celebration trailer. So I feel like at first they're going to, like, fight each other. And it's going to kind of that be that traditional meeting of like, you know, like, oh, I'm the bigger person. No, I'm the bigger person. He's going to get his ass whooped by her, I think. And he's going to be completely See, I, taken aback by that. They never released the celebration trailer, did they? Was the celebration trailer different from the first one they released? Because I wasn't yes. in the panel. Uh, I saw it somewhere online, but I remember okay. there being a scene where they were like fist fighting with each other. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Oh, I, God, I can't you wait. Know, they're, they're probably coming from two very, very different backgrounds. She's probably going to yes. be like, why don't you ever take that stupid thing off? <laughs> <laughs> I got to wonder, too, how the Imperials fit into all this. You know, are they going to be on his tail now with him taking Baby Yoda? And we heard briefly Dr. Pershing talk to Warning, Werner Herzog saying he explicitly ordered us to bring it, Baby Yoda, back alive. So his boss is a he. And I wonder if it's Giancarlo Esposito's character who is Moff Gideon, apparently. That's his name. So I wonder if now Moff Gideon is going to be going after the Mandalorian for the rest of the season. And that's why they run into such a large Imperial presence. And if Cara Dune has a ex-rebel background, that's going to be some pretty interesting character motivation for her to be so hateful towards the Empire. That's going to kind of drive the, the fire beneath her and like you know kind of make her go completely all out and we've seen her holding that giant ass gatling gun uh so and i wonder how bill burr fits into all this too like there's so many different characters we haven't met yet like the assassin 
And oh, there's just so much that's to come. I don't I just I don't know where this is going to go. <laughs> yeah, I think the the Empire, the remnants of the Empire trying to be very secretive because we know from stuff like Bloodline where like the, the First Order was basically forming in secret and no one kind of believed Leia when she was trying to warn them like, hey, this thing is happening. So I feel like they're mostly going to operate through other bounty hunters, like keep sending more bounty hunters after Mando. Yeah. And he's going to keep having these encounters with more bounty hunters along the way. Maybe that's even who like Ming-Na Wen's character is. Like she's oh. a bounty hunter sent after him. That would be cool. That would be awesome. Oh my God. So cool. I can't wait for episode four. It's coming out this Friday. So to wrap up our discussion here, I thought we could talk about uh, Baby Yoda and then let's talk about some Easter eggs. So let's talk about our favorite Baby Yoda moments from this episode because he is Baby and we love him so much. So Madison, what's your favorite Baby Yoda moment of chapter three? My favorite was definitely the moment with them in the speeder wagon is what I'm calling it. Because they called it a speeder, but it just looks like a wagon to me. <laughs> <laughs> that was definitely my number one moment. I was like a mess crying. Um, I've got like my top three moments here tried to rank them it's so hard because i love them all (laughs) my second favorite was mando giving baby the little metal ball at the end that he had like taken away from him at the beginning it was so cute (laughs) so cute and my third favorite was him carrying baby through the imperial hideout that was just amazing (laughs) (laughs) so epic yes I was going to say, for me, definitely the Mando giving the, the baby the metal ball. Just how he drops it into his hand and he, like, grabs it with his other hand when he gets it. And then he, like, kind of cowers underneath the, the cockpit ma- uh, dashboard. And you're like, oh, he's going to be playing with that for so long. You know, he's going to be, like, chewing on it and putting it in his mouth. Like, you know, babies put everything in their mouths. Gosh, it's like I almost his new swallow pinky. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's already swallowed a frog, so clearly he's got a fairly large esophagus. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I also really liked when they first get off the ship on this planet and there's another ship la- landing and Baby Yoda is kind of looking up at it and his ears are blowing backwards oh from my the gosh. wind of the ship landing. And it was just such a glamour shot for Baby Yoda. I really appreciated that. I've literally tweeted about this, but like <laughs> every episode with Baby Yoda, so like the past two, I've just been like clutching my chest in pain because it is so cute. It hurts me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Adorable. And I also enjoyed when that thing comes out of the wall at the hideout and like scans the Mandalorian. When it first comes out, Baby Yoda kind of opens his mouth wide. He's like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Like obviously right before he gets really scared of it, but he was just like, whoa, that's cool. I want to touch that thing. (laughs) It just seemed like such a childlike moment of like wonder and curiosity. I just loved it. Yeah. Just a side note. I loved it when Mando ripped that thing out of the wall. (laughs) Yes. So good. It's like, shut up. Everyone's (laughs) been wanting to do that since Return of the Jedi. (laughs) (laughs) Finally got our payoff. Thank you, Deborah Chow. Yes. In terms of Easter eggs, we talked earlier about how the big Mandalorian guy, his name is Paz Vizsla, and he is voiced by Jon Favreau. So if it sounded familiar, that's because it did sound like like pre-Vizsla. Although the name is spelled differently, apparently it's missing an S from Vizsla. I don't know if that's a mistake or if that's on purpose, but yeah, that's it can't weird. be a coincidence that the house Vizsla is showing up somehow, at least in the pronunciation in the show. So again, it could be another faction of house Vizsla, like maybe a separate faction that kind of went away from the true house Vizsla when the whole mall takeover happened and when yeah. that, that stuff went down. So After pre-Vizsla got 
Yeah, after Pre Vizsla got killed, I wonder if like what happened to the rest of his like house. Yeah. And it can't be coincidence that it sounds the same because it's voiced by John Favreau again. Mm-hmm. So our next Easter egg here is Wilrow Hood. So if you've heard of Wilrow Hood, he is infamously known as one of the mystery characters running through the halls of Cloud City and Empire Strikes Back, holding what we've for so long have been thinking or referring to is the ice cream container. And one of the first behind the scenes shots that we got was this ice cream container posted on John Favreau's Instagram. And people went crazy because they were like, oh my God, like we're getting what this is now. And it's called a Camtono. So it was finally given a name, but it's an object that basically is a storage device or a mini vault of some sort. So it's what the Beskar is stored in and is what is given to the Mandalorian by Werner Herzog's character. So okay, that was I knew fascinating. It, I knew it looked like the ice cream container, but I didn't know it had been given a name. That's exciting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and Grief Cargo also mentions, you know, why don't you relax, Mandalorian? Go get yourself a Camtono of spice, and when you get out of hyperspace, you'll feel more relaxed than ever. So apparently it's really good at storing spice or drugs in this galaxy. Apparently. <laughs> so, yeah, apparently Grief Cargo hasn't has clearly done that once or twice in his time. So I thought that was fun that we finally got a name for this. Yeah, for sure. So the next Easter egg was exciting when the baby Yoda and Mando get off the ship and they're going. he's going to deliver the bounty. You can see behind Mando a quad jumper, which if you remember, we, saw, we last saw a quad jumper in The Force Awakens. So that was a cool little Easter egg. Yeah, it took me a little bit to pick that one up, like a couple, couple watch throughs, but... I know we've seen maybe Constable Zuvio is in that bar in that guild. So I wonder if that's his ship. wonder if that's how it ends up on Jakku. The conspiracy thickens. <laughs> <laughs> Tin foil hat slowly comes on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so our last Easter egg is Grief Cargo when he gets shot by the Mandalorian in the chest and gets saved by the Beskar steel in his pocket. I thought to Back of the Future Part 3 where Marty gets shot in the standoff with uh, Biff's character, his old ancestor, and we see that Marty survives because he puts like part of a furnace underneath his, his uh, outfit. So when he gets shot by the bullet, it actually stops the bullet and he pulls it out, kind of like Grief Karga. So I thought that was maybe a Back to the Future reference. I can't think of any other TV or films that do this sort of thing or this sort of trope. But uh, I got to say, the music that plays when the Mando escapes and runs to his ship and you see in the background, all the Mandalorians fighting so good. Ludwig so Gordon's good. theme and the variations of the Mandalorian score that he's doing. The main theme song is just so powerful and how, how, how much it quickened when he was running to that, sh- that ship. I just felt it gave me chills. Honestly, I just love same. It. Yeah, and, and speaking of Easter eggs and references, the, the ending shootout really reminded me of Pale Rider. I don't know if you've seen that film, but it's a Western, Clint Eastwood Western. And at the end of the film, spoiler alert, but it's been out for decades. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the end of that film, he's alone in this town and he literally takes out like so many outlaws by himself by sneaking around and kind of taking them out in a quiet manner and it very much like reminded me of that when Mando was just like taking out so many bounty hunters like by himself and he was like hiding in the wagon and stuff and you like see the gun peeking around like <laughs> through the, the the containers and stuff it was totally reminding me of that so yeah cool. 
By the way, how badass is it that when he shoots people with that gun, you hear like a scream? I don't yes. know. I just think that's such a small detail. That's kind of terrifying, but also really cool. I love that weapon so much. I mean, it literally disintegrates people. He He's like got a scope where he can like see through the walls and stuff with like the thermal, whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, and it like shocks people. I mean, that I would want that thing if I had to pick a weapon. <laughs> it does everything you need. Yeah. It's really like the greatest yeah. Swiss army knife in the Star Wars universe, but for a gun. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it, it has a name, but I cannot remember the name of it. It's like a, it's something rifle. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, to close out here, you know, we, we didn't get too many questions this week. <laughs> so make sure you send us your questions using the hashtag complicated confessions because we do want to answer listener questions to make the show more interactive. But we did get a question from Eric Eilerson at the Living Forest podcast. And he wants to know who has bigger daddy energy, the Mandalorian or Poe Dameron? Well, that's easy. <laughs> it's obviously the Mandalorian. Yeah. Come yeah. on. <laughs> Like, Poe Dameron has daddy energy because of his face and his hair, like, clearly. The Mandalorian has such daddy swagger, but it's all non-verbal, mm-hmm. which I think is more powerful. Yeah, exactly. Plus, he's literally a dad now, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's taking care of a little beeb, little bean, string yeah. bean. Uh, yeah, Mando wins, no question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah undoubtedly. That's, that's, that's the tea for this week. If you uh, think differently, let us know. But uh, Mandalorian wins the daddy battle of the week, so... <laughs> That's pretty much it for this episode, chapter three. It was a great one. I, I love this episode. Deborah Chow will be directing episode seven of The Mandalorian in the first season. So I'm very, very excited to see what she brings back to the table in just a couple weeks here. That that actually means she directs the episode that comes out the day before Tross. Oh, wow. So if she's able to melt our minds just as she did like this time around, December 19th is when chapter seven comes out. So we'll be watching The Mandalorian that morning and then going to see Tross later that night. It's going to be a little overwhelming that day, I can say. Yeah, definitely. It's crazy <laughs> to think about the fact that The Mandalorian this season isn't going to end until after Tross. Like, that just kind of blows my mind a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Cannot wait. Well, Madison, this was a fun This was a fun time. This is one of my favorite episodes. I think it is my favorite episode of the season so far. So how would you rank this episode amongst the other ones? Yeah, I agree. I honestly, I think this one's my favorite. Yeah. There's just something about it. It was just so action-packed, and it also just really, the way it handled the relationship between Mando and Baby Yoda was just so fantastic. 10 out of 10. (laughs) Yes, I would agree. Well, you know, if you want to hear more of our opinions and thoughts on The Mandalorian each week, again, Bounties and Blasters comes out every single Sunday. And you can send us questions using the hashtag complicated confessions. We will be talking about the episode, our favorite moments from it, our favorite baby Yoda moments, how it relates to the hero's journey. And I'm very excited for Kara Dune to enter the conversation next week. But we do enjoy talking about the show. It's it's truly a great time to be a Star Wars fan and getting live action television along with the ending of the Skywalker saga. It's just some pretty great stuff happening. But as for Friends of the Forest, half of the show... You can find us at Friends of Force on Twitter and Friends of the Force on Instagram. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Friends of the Force. Thank you to Alderanian Rose, Neil Lowry, Real Farm Boy, Chris from Kentucky, Michael Condon, and T. And we are also a part of the Star Wars Escape Pods Network, which promotes positivity in the Star Wars fandom. And you can find all of the episodes of my podcast doing talking, also the Revora Report, which is my resistance podcast, and all of the episodes of Bounties and Blasters 
at doingtalking.com. You can also follow Doing Talking on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Doing Talking Pod. You can follow me personally at Madison underscore Thames on Twitter. And you can also keep up with the show on iTunes, Spreaker, lots of places to listen. I have a YouTube channel. It's Maddie Solo. That's M-A-D-I hyphen solo. And I also have a Patreon that's fairly new. So be sure to check that out if you're interested. It's patreon.com slash doing talking. You out there listening, you should join both of our Patreons because it's a great way to help support us and give back. And we are doing some great stuff for this series, and I hope we continue to uh, to differentiate it from many of the others out there. And I will maybe give a hint. Do you want to give a hint of maybe something that's coming out, Madison, about, yeah. the, uh, about the series? Yeah, there might be a, a merch announcement coming soon <sighs> that's going to be very cute. Ooh, say it ain't so. <laughs> say it ain't so. Well, if you're a part of the Friends of the Forest Patreon, you actually got a glimpse of that that uh that what's to come so that's a pretty cool perk and then i know madison you post a lot of extra artwork on your patreon as well for uh, yes. your patrons yeah you can see the preview as well on my patreon so Ooh. if you want to see it you gotta you gotta go to our patreons <laughs> <laughs> fantastic well that wraps up our discussion on chapter three of the mandalorian and unfortunately we got to close out the show here but madison to that i will say this is the way This is the way.